Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. All right, we're back here for Act 2 of Volume 135 of Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and uh, did everybody stretch your legs during intermission? Pay $5 for a box of dots? All right. <laughs> so you're ready for our interviews. We got Mo Hannon, uh, Tony nominee from Cats, the original Gus Theater Cat, and lots of great stories, must say. He is a Gus the Theater Cat, that is for sure. We've got On the Boards with The Runner Stumbles from the Actors Theater Company. we got Cabaret Corner, Upright Cabaret out of Los Angeles. And right now, we're going to head into... Top of the Trades. It was announced today by the New York Post that Jessica Alba is being courted by the producers of the newest revival of Speed the Plow by David Mamet for the spring of 2008. There is no news as to who will be playing opposite Alba in the upcoming revival, but rumors abound that James Gandolfini of Sopranos fame and Michael Imperioli are at the top of the producers' list. When asked, uh, this is my own surmising, but when asked why they picked Jessica Alba, they said they wanted somebody on par with the original actress, Madonna. Paper Mill Playhouse welcomes new executive director Mark W. Jones as they prepare to open their latest production, Meet Me in St. Louis. Jones comes to Paper Mill from Shakespeare and Company, based out of Massachusetts, and began his new position on November 4th. A new artistic director for the theater has not yet been named. Casting has been announced for the Second Stage Theater's new Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkie musical, Next to Normal. Alice Ripley and Brian Darcy James have been picked to play the leads in the new off-Broadway musical that is set to go into previews in mid-January at Second Stages. Top of the Trades is sponsored by BroadwayWorld.com. For all of your theater news and social activities, visit BroadwayWorld.com. And Top of the Trades comes every episode, bringing you the latest theater news. Up close. Stephen Mohannon has had a distinguished career on Broadway, playing many roles, including a Tony nomination in Cats, as well as a lot of other things, which we'll get into. He is currently working with uh, Folksbean Theater, which is doing Kleinkunst, which is a cabaret on Yiddish theater between the wars in Warsaw. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Lovely to see you, Michael. Yeah, it's good to have you here, Mo. So I understand that uh, this kind of foray into the Yiddish theater is something that's a little bit new for you. It's it's my second time this year actually working with Folksbina. The uh, my first was their Yiddish uh, adaptation of the Pirates of Penzance, which was done um, actually I think last fall first, and then it was revived in the spring of '07 because for I'm happy to say by popular <laughs> demand, it was hugely successful and wonderful. Production. The whole and the funny thing was the Pirates of Penzance was actually has figured in my life since childhood. It was the first 
uh, record that I ever owned was the Doily Cart version of Pirates of Penzance. And then the, re the revival in 1980 with Linda Ronstadt and Kevin Klein was my Broadway debut. Oh, what were you in that? I was Samuel, the first mate. Wow. So I was constantly next to Kevin Klein. If your eye ever strayed off Kevin Klein, you would have seen me. Um, <laughs> so, and that was actually my first time working with Graciela Danielle as well. I, was, I mean, that, that was an incredibly happy experience. And then, um, and then they asked me, as, do you think, no, I don't speak Yiddish. They said, do you think you could possibly learn the role of the major general in Yiddish. I was just going to say, I'm dying to know what the lyrics for modern major general are in Yiddish. Ich bin der größte General und ich bin euch ein guter Jid. Ich gehe euch rechnen alle meine Meiles in ein Jiddisch Lied. Ich habe einen klugen Kopf und ich verstehe eins, eins, Theoria. And on and on. They also... They weren't a mouthful enough. It was amazing. And I learned it all phonetically. I mean, I don't speak it, you know. And then they interpolated the Nightmare Song from Iolanthe as a second act number for the major general, or I should say the Grace general. That's how I get used to thinking of him. Uh, and that was really tough. I mean, that, that was because uh, that's, a, you know, when you're lying awake with a dismal headache and uh, in Yiddish. Um, so it was a fascinating and wonderful experience. I mean, it's such a it's a terrific language to speak and sing. It's very theatrical. It's just got such a wonderful sound and such funny idioms. So um, you know, I had a, I grew up with a Jewish background, but my parents didn't speak Yiddish at home or anything like that. You know, I knew chutzpah and shiksa basically <laughs> is the extent of my Yiddish vocabulary. Hey, I know that much. You see, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Does bagel count? I'm not sure. Um, so that was uh, a schmear. There you go, schmear, absolutely. Um, but this was this was like really beautiful, poetic, articulate Yiddish. It was fascinating to to see how the translation worked. And so they asked me um, this year when the Kleinkunst project came up, would I be interested in coming back and doing another show? Actually, more Kleinkunst is more in English than in Yiddish. I'd say that it's material from there was a thriving uh, cabaret, Yiddish cabaret in Warsaw between the wars, very much influenced by Three Penny Opera and that whole kind of uh, middle European between the wars cabaret, uh, racy, sort of cynical, Brechtian kind of thing. And um, so there was all of this wonderful left, original archival material in Yiddish, most of which has been translated into English, or typically with the numbers we do, a, a chorus and a verse in Yiddish and then another one in English. Folksbina always does their productions with supertitles, not only in English but in Russian, because a lot of their uh, patrons are uh, emigre Russians who who speak Yiddish. Actually, whose who's Russian is better than their Yiddish. <laughs> so, uh, so they do the, sh the the show is simultaneously translated in uh, into English and Russian at the same time. But um, it's about I'd say it's about I think it's a little more than fifty percent English, and then Yiddish as well. Well, I know you brought with you a couple of songs uh, on CD from the the show. And uh, this first one, we're going to play one right now. Do you want to tell us anything about this first one? And like that's, which one is it? Uh, Whichever one you'd like us to play oh, first. Well, uh, gee, why not start with the number that's my solo? I mean, I hate to, you know. Um, strike while the iron is hot, you know. As Bernard Shaw says, uh, always accept a throne when it's offered. So uh, this is a number that's called Madagascar. It's based on a, an actual historical uh, strange situation that in 1937, with what with the, the Nazis next door and Hitler making all of the noises, the Polish government decided to investigate the possibility of, as they put it, solving the Jewish problem by repatriating all of Poland's Jews to Madagascar. 
Um, and they sent a fact-finding mission to actually see if it, seemed, if it was possible to... Now, at this point, the city of Warsaw was 30% Jewish. So, I mean, you imagine taking 30% of a large city and just sending, shipping them all off to Madagascar. This song was written to make fun of that, uh, of that government idea. And, of course, nothing ever came of it. But at least it produced a very, very funny song for which I also... And I did the English lyrics, so uh, I am doubly happy with it. <laughs> All right, let's take a listen. Okay. Poland, we will see you later. Time to get away. Grab a boat to the equator. Africa, hooray. Safe from Polish blizzards, I'll be hunting lizards, koshering their gizzards, dancing night and day. Ah, Madagascar, it's like a schmitz, but out of doors, even so we will enjoy Madagascar. There's no attack, cause all those black goyim run around in drawers. They'll show me how to swim, it will be easy to enjoy. They aren't half as primitive as any Polish goy. Madagascar, forget the Jordan, you're the promised land. And might find the Queen of Sheba, dark with kinky hair, the ring like an amoeba in her underwear. Cops to book us, she will shake her tuckers from Hanukkah to Sokas, life without a care. Hey, Madagascar, just like a Tarzan, I will swing with my charcoal shiksa. Hey, Madagascar, and my divan, I'll eat bananas and frolic like a king. With elephants and rhinos, I will pass the time away when no one laughs at my nose and where life is always gay. Oi! Madagascar, forget the Jordan, you're the promised land. task with a pool that's sanitary mikvah madagask customers will dine there shabbos candles shine there natives pouring wine there before you even ask it's like a schmitz but out of doors Gates are shut. Just nail up a mezuzah on the entrance to your hut. No blizzards, huh? just lizards. Huh? A tuckers, huh? a suckers. Huh? Promised land in the sand. Guy in black in my shack. Roaming free up a tree. That's for me. Hi. So backing up a little bit into your career, you started off in uh, Pirates Penzance. And uh, there probably was something, I'm assuming, between that and your Tony nomination with Cats. Um, actually, I would know. I meant immediately from one to the other. Really? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I had fi- I had that close? I guess I didn't realize it. Cats uh, ran a long time. Oh, uh, gee. <laughs> uh, almost 18 years. 
if I'm not mistaken. It, it opened. We're actually this month, October. What's left of it? October celebrates the 25th anniversary of Cats opening on Broadway. Um, I think it's the only show um, that has had a 25th anniversary, most of which was actually spent performing. It's kind of amazing to think that um, it opened October 7th, 1982, and I left Pirates while it was still running. And um, immediately actually ran to my friend Andy Zerman, who at that time was uh, casting with Johnson Liff. Um, he said, I saw him at the theater about a week after leaving Pirates, and he said, what are you doing? I thought you were, aren't you still in Pirates? I said, no, I just left it. And um, it had been my very first, uh, it was my first Broadway show, and thus my first long run. And a year was really plenty at that point. It was really getting um, tired of it. And all of the, may, uh, Kevin had left, Linda had left. Um, Rex Smith had left. Uh, oh, George Rose uh, was was the only one of the original cast who was still doing it at that point, and this didn't have the same buzz. And you know, I had been in it for a year, so so I left. And Andy said, "Well, you know, I'm I'm we're casting a show that's coming over from London, uh, a new Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that I think is a great part uh, for you." Uh, I said, "Really? I didn't know anything about it." Um, so he just he said, "Well, you know, call this number." When I was t- going to take a vacation, this was January, so I went off to Jamaica, and he said, "Call when you get back." So I mean, something like, you know, they thirty five hundred people were submitted for that show, of whom they saw eighteen hundred, and I got an appointment without even having an agent, just because I ran into Andy. I didn't even know what part I was auditioning for. I had absolutely no—I knew nothing about the show. I guess I'd heard, "Oh yeah, this is thing Cats in London." So, um, and I got hired almost immediately. So uh, they then put me, they sent me to, didn't start rehearsals until August, but they said, you know, it's, it's your part. I was Gus the Theater Cat. I didn't have to do all of that much dancing, but they didn't want me to look like a ringer. So between February and August, they sent me at their expense to um, dance classes five days a week. And um, that was an amazing experience. I really got in great shape. And, um, and then, you know, of course, the show opened and was this incredible, legendary thing. It was just, you know, so many jokes were made about Cats <laughs> as it la- last, you yeah. know, more than nine lives. I just kept going and going and going. But um, at the, in the, the first six months of it, it was just electrifying. The buzz was amazing. No one had ever seen anything like it. Well, the thing, from what I understand, too, it's easy to, it seems to be, it's easy to forget now knowing it's, it ran forever and stuff, but... I seem to recall hearing that most people thought it was going to be like this big flop before it opened. It was a laughing stock, kind of like maybe Xanadu was. Well, I think, yeah, you know, I I, I, I think especially so in London. I know that, I mean, I heard the story that um, uh, Andrew Andrew had to mortgage his house at one point because they couldn't raise enough money to to do the full... uh, They couldn't raise the money to to meet the budget. So, So he had to, you know throwing his own some of his own funds but it ended up of course being this huge smash and by that point I think they were pretty sure that by the time they were transferring it to Broadway and my god I mean the publicity you know that was really the beginning of the Cameron McIntosh era with the you know the the two yellow eyes with the dancers inside you know and against the black background everybody saw that all over the world and um, Cameron was very smart about promoting it and it was a magical magical show, especially with the original cast. It was, um, we had the luxury of a full week of rehearsal with Trevor, um, just doing improvs on being feline. 
without even working on the script or, or hardly any learning the songs but not doing any staging. It was all of this amazing improv work about what it really would be like to be a cat. And the, the, the original cast developed a kind of tribal, almost telepathic sense of relating with each other that was, that was very, very special. And you could always feel that in the, in the, with the original cast of the show. Um, you know, children. I remember one wonderful thing that Trevor said. Um, the first time that we moved from the rehearsal studio up to the Winter Garden, and they ran all of the tricks, everything that the set did, the back wall coming down, and of course the tire at the end, and the amazing lighting effects, all of that stuff. And you know, everybody in the cast sat there with their with their mouths hanging open at the, the sheer spectacle of it. And Trevor said, "Well, you'll recall now. I've been saying from the beginning." that the ultimate purpose of the show is to make adults in the theater once more feel the way little children do when they go to the theater for the first time. The sense of the magic and wonder that theater can create. And it totally did that in, in a truly uh, unforgettable way. If I had known at the time that it was a, a nail in the coffin of the book musical on Broadway, <laughs> I might have felt differently about it, but it was very special at the time. Seems like you're very used to talking about this. This is like great information. <laughs> it's great hearing about the story. But you've also done several things since your career has, you know, definitely gone on in the 25 oh, years since. So oh, some of the highlights. That well, um, um, I did. Um, I played Tenardier. I, I, I replaced Alan Armstrong in the original London cast of Les Mis as Tenardier which was an amazing experience because I had I got my acting training in London. I went to Lambda on a Fulbright fellowship when I got out of college. And, and um, I always wanted to go back to London, but I didn't want to go back as a tourist. I wanted to go back as a working actor, and that's exactly what happened. So uh, and the Palace Theatre, where Les Mis played, and as far, to, for all I know, still plays in London. I'm not sure if it's still running there or not. Um, in any case, they didn't have the kind of hiatus that we had here. Um, they, you know, that was built for, that was built by Doily Cart for Sullivan's grand opera, Ivanhoe, when Arthur Sullivan got tired of collaborating with Gilbert. And it was this amazing theater from the 1890s where Sarah Bernhardt had played Cleopatra and, you know, the old, there was a ghost running around somewhere of some actor who hanged himself up on the top floor and the bowels of the theater were like nothing I've ever seen in my life. It's like the, the set of of Phantom of the Opera with everything coming up out of the floor is like, is I think probably based on the actual basement of the Palace Theater in London. It's just so, it seems to just disappear into the bowels of the earth. It's remarkable. So that was a terrific experience. Uh, then I was, oh God, talk about bringing the house down. I was doing a show at ACT in San Francisco in the fall of 89 when the earthquake hit, the, the, the one that was right on the first day of the World Series. And um, the, the proscenium of the Geary Theater collapsed, buried the first uh, six rows of the orchestra in, in like 10 feet of rubble. Fortunately, it was at 5 in the afternoon, so there was no audience there. But um, that kind of put paid to the, 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 the show that I was doing there. However, uh, the very next day, my agent called and said, are you possibly available to fly to Atlanta and meet the director of Kathy Rigby's production of Peter Pan, which is doing a first national tour, and will hopefully come to Broadway? So I actually owed it to the San Francisco earthquake. And um, so I did flew out there, and uh, they, uh, they hired me to be Captain Hook. And I got to be Captain Hook for uh, 13, 14 months in 31 cities. And then the show did indeed come to the Lund Fontaine. 
and um, it was wonderful. It's uh, I had absolutely, you know, I saw it when I was a kid on, on TV, the old Mary Martin version. And when you study Peter Pan, it's it's really an amazing, amazing piece. And Captain Hook is a fascinating kind of tragic character that was loads and loads of fun to do and, and be terrifying as well. Peter Pan definitely is one of those, you know, stories that, you know, the everything about it has come into our whole myth of our culture. And <laughs> Yeah, well, it's got a lot of, I mean, the interesting things that I think, you know, people think of it as a show that they're going to bring as, as to their kids to, and of course it's a wonderful family thing, but it also, um, you know, like E.T. or anything that's a really great family show, there's something to speak to adults as well. And uh, I think in the case of Peter Pan, it's, it's, it's juxtaposing this amazing free spirit that Peter is, but he also is totally irresponsible and, you know, only interested and, and incredibly of an egotist. You know, there's a thing in the book where one of, they're flying to Neverland and one of the boys drops down and Peter lets him fall. And only at the last minute, just before Michael is about to actually hit the water, does Peter scoop down and pick him up again. And, and you get the sense that he's doing it not because he really cares about Michael and wants to rescue him, but he wants to show off. And he's always showing off, but he's, he's, so, he's just so, so upfront about it and he has so much chutzpah. That is delightful. And then opposite that, you have Captain Hook, who's exactly the opposite, who's a complete control freak and lives without any sense of spontaneity whatsoever and, and believes that he is the, that everyone on the planet is his social inferior. That's really his problem. <laughs> You know, and isn't, so isn't I, that a director? Well, well <laughs> I've worked with some of them. It's true, but so it's a. The, I think it really poses a very interesting question of: Do you have to lose in, in in going from childhood to adulthood? Do you have to turn into Captain Hook? Is it possible to maintain the sense of fun and spontaneity that a child has, and at the same time? Gain an an adult sense of responsibility and and uh, and you know doing your duty and participating in the world that other people are in, and I you know even if you only get that on a subconscious level, it's very very interesting, and and made it you know a very easy role to just play for for more than a year. Um, there's always more stuff to find in that character. Um, so that and Kathy was so wonderful, great to work with, and a terrific Peter Pan, and it was super. And uh, then I got involved over a period of years with, with uh, <laughs> speaking of egomaniacs, with Al Jolson, <laughs> with, um, with uh, the late, much lamented Al Jolson. Uh, my friend Jay Burko was, uh, had gotten the job of, of directing a one-man show that had been written about Jolson. And uh, people have been for telling me, probably since the age of eight that I resemble Al Jolson and, and sound like him too. And uh, so Jay said we'd be interested in doing this part. And we did it in Florida and thought you could actually you this does he doesn't work as the subject of a one man show because he was he was so full of himself and so absolutely devoid of any kind of introspection and self-knowledge whatsoever <laughs> that his version, Jolson's version of his life, um, gets, gets really tired very quickly. But we, it was a fascinating life and, and full of extraordinary encounters and with people and, um, and pioneering almost every form of media that we now have. And uh, we thought if you could create a show where that you actually – had interactions between Jolson and and the and the men and the the four wives the four women that he married and all these other people in his life you could really do a great story so we created our own script 
which was called Jolson and Company, and was first done at the York Theater, and then played um, at the the Century on uh, at Union Square. And that also featured Nancy Anderson played all of the women in Jolson's life. Oh, we just had Nancy Anderson on the show here a couple weeks ago. Oh, she's so great. <laughs> I love working with her. And she was Mae West. She was Ruby Keeler. She was uh, th- uh, three of Jolson's wives. Well, Ruby was one of them. And Jolson's mother. I mean, she has an incredible range. And Bob Arry, who uh, was lately standing by for Frank Langella. Uh, in uh, Nix- Frost Nixon, Nixon Frost, I can never remember which Frost one. Frost Nixon. There we go. <laughs> anyway, Bob was all of the men in Jolson's life, Harry Cohn and his father and record producers and his brother. And so it was really the th- all three of us had tour de force roles to do. I was Jolson straight through, and they kept changing hats and becoming fascinating different people. And that was a great experience as well. And uh, it was amazing to do... To sing the Jolson material on stage in front of an audience, you think of it now as if anybody does it at all, it's, you know, somebody will do like one Jolson cut on a record of, you know, he's doing a bunch of old stuff from the 20s or 30s or something. And we've lost sight of the fact that he was a very skillful picker of material that worked on an audience in a theater. Um, I, Jay and I used to say when we were first approaching the part, how could you... How could he possibly get a standing ovation singing April Showers? I mean, it just seemed just ludicrous. The idea was ludicrous. And it turned out that that number just reaches people in an incredibly deep emotional level um, about, you know, optimism, listening for the bluebird. You th- the lyrics are ridiculously corny. The, the chord progressions are so smart. The harmonic changes in that in Rockabye Your Baby, in Mammy. I mean, he had the most skillful generation of Tin Pan Alley composers just prior to the advent of Gershwin and Rodgers and Hart and those guys. And they really knew what they were doing. And this material, um, I mean, Rockabye Your Baby in the middle was a showstopper just because of the, the, the emotional charge that audiences get from that song. I you know, think no matter who does it, it's just it's, it's a real classic. And it was wonderful to reexamine that period of American popular music because it's a lot better than people think. So that was a guess. <laughs> well, and kind of to tie that in and get back to the, the yes, show we're please. promoting, reexamining another style of music here for the current glasses, Klein Kunst. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, amazing material. We were rehearsing the other day and the... And the, the the person at the desk in the rehearsal studio said to someone who walked out during the break, he said, wow, that, was, that song is just wonderful. And I actually can hardly get to sleep at night because one tune or another. We're, we're still in rehearsal. We open on the 18th of November at, uh, at the JCC on the Upper West Side, um, which is the space that Folks Bina uses all the time. But anyway, this woman, so we were in rehearsalist and and... I, I can't sleep because those tunes just run through my head all night long. It's amazing. Never heard of any of the composers. Have no idea who they were, but they were part of this Yiddish cabaret scene in Warsaw. Some of the numbers were in Polish originally, some of them in Yiddish. And it's a very sassy uh, take on what it was like to have just survived the Great War. And um, an, an assimilated Jewish culture is just beginning to take its place side by side with the old Hasidic and religious Jewish culture, just as it did in Berlin and Paris and New York. And um, and then, of course, it, the, the, it turns dark when the war comes and the whole this entire culture is just destroyed. So it's amazingly poignant at the end. But up until then, there's just some just fabulous toe tapping numbers. 
um, that my co-star, Rebecca Joy Fletcher, has um, researched and done all the archival work on finding this amazing stuff. And um, it's just delicious. There's just just one, one great tune, one great number after another. And a picture of a vanished civilization, too, which is neat. Well, you brought in another one of those songs from uh, some other cast members. Do you want to set this one up? Yes, this is me and Rebecca doing uh, early on in the show. There's a number called A Thief in the Night. Um, it has no political context particularly. It's just about the fact that, I guess as I was saying, the Jews were been beginning to move away from the old orthodox shtetl way of doing things. So this is a song about a couple of Jewish gangsters, uh, a couple of crooks, who have this kind of sort of a Polish-Yiddish-Warsaw version of an Apache relationship, uh, slightly S&M, but with a heart of gold, and it's called The Thief in the Night. All right. I steal in the night when everything is black. That's when you swipe my heart, kid, you kleptomaniac. I told you I was good. I said I had the touch. I picked more than your pocket. You lousy such and such Sitting pretty In Gangster City Won't get caught, that's for sure Wait and see Pleasures linger In an itchy finger So give in Marry me, marry me Oh, I may have your heart But you've got all the cash Every time you squeeze me You make me feel like trash You've got it all wrong I squeeze with tenderness, getting all the hate out. Yes, all the bitterness. Oh, you liar. You light my fire. But for now, I still got liberty. You ain't living till you give in. Drop that gun. Marry me, marry me. <laughs> I steal diamond rings. Ropes of precious pearls While you go flirt with Yasala Like all the other girls Yasala's a Frenchie A sentimental sap He promises the world to you And then gives you the clap I got tools, I got jewels They'll be yours just as soon I get back What you got, babe, ain't a lot, babe and Yossi is better in the sack. What does this dishrag want? This Yossi gets my goat. I'd like to flash my switchblade and cut his precious throat. He is squeezing me too tight. Oh, baby, what's the point? I just don't want my big shot to end up in the joint. Sitting pretty in Cutthroat City. When you kill cause you can't get enough. Ha! You're forgetting. <laughs> it's upsetting. When your baby is stopping some cough I don't need other men That's why I stole your heart Let's go to Buenos Aires ha! And make a brand new start That's what I want to hear Enough of all this fuss You'll be the bottle I'll be the Balabas Sitting pretty In our new city Fat and happy as we can to be No 
struggle. We'll just snuggle. We'll be married and love legally. Uns ist Schatten, kein Maß im Atten, mit Stadtparat, send mir Blatt, send mir Blatt. Still Parole, nur die Rolle. We'll be married and love legally. Well, with all the various things going on, you know, politically in the theater right now, with people talking about the Frankenstein prices and the possible strike is still banning about and all those various things, I'm kind of curious from your perspective as an actor how much you feel. Has, has the industry from your perspective or from an actor's perspective changed at all from when you entered into it with Pirates Penzance oh, yeah. versus now? Yeah, I think tremendously. Um, and... Uh, from an actor's viewpoint, and in terms of the scripts that are just floating around, there's such a difference. And the and, and you know the kind of musicals that are now, as I said, I mean, Cats was Cats. Cats at the time looked like something new and remarkable, uh, and extraordinary. And then it turned out to be. I mean, I think it, it was actually. I don't want to say a wrong turn because it, you know, it brought a lot of people tremendous joy, and it ran. For all I know, it's probably still running somewhere in the world, and I think it's a wonderful score. And you know, there's a lot of great points about it, but I think the emphasis on spectacle and away from really deep human stories has been um, has made musical theater less interesting for an actor. In general, because there, I mean, with the with the you know exceptions of occasional shows like that are just really really witty and wonderful to play, just from a comedic point of view, um, shows like uh, Avenue Q, Xanadu. I mean, there's some great stuff out there now, still. And but you know, and and as far as straight plays goes, I mean, it's it's they're practically disappearing. Although I want to put in a plug, if I may, <laughs> for a show that I have absolutely nothing to do with, except that I got my hands on a script earlier this summer. And is he dead? By Mark Twain, you know the the thing that's about oh, to, the David Ives. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. About to, you know, written by Mark Twain in 1898 and never published until 2004. And I want to tell you, I sat there reading it with tears rolling down my cheeks. It's one of the funniest plays I have ever read. I don't know how much. Well, I think it, David Ives is one of the most underrated playwrights there is. I think he deserves to have a a much bigger stamp on the scene than he. Than he he's got a good stamp. I think he really deserves. Well, to be up this. There with, I mean, I don't know how much of this is Mark Twain and how much of it is. Yeah. David. <laughs> but it is, I mean, whoever, it is hysterically funny. It's a farce that um, chances are Twain might have seen um, uh, Charlie's aunt before writing this play um, because there is a cross-dressing element in it. But there's also elements of Fado farce and incredible wit and, you know, Mark Twain's amazing sense of humor. It's, uh, you know... Um, if if I were a Catholic, I would light a candle every night for the success of Is He Dead? Because I think it's just get, getting to read it. It's one of the funniest scripts I've ever seen, and I hope people will go. Because it's just, it's hilarious. It's very, very, very funny. So there are things that do surface. I mean, sometimes they're plays that are over 100 years old. But, um, you know, I, it's also, I mean, the, 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 it was very interesting. Um, I was always a, a very strong union type person until doing Cats. And um, I witnessed a certain amount of feather bedding that I thought, you know, 
this is really they don't need to hire that many people to do the I mean that some of the jobs could be rolled into one job. now I mean, the thing is they're all that's my that is my problem with mm-hmm. with the unions in in my thing in the argument just to go on a tangent is I have no problem with people earning a good solid wage and people getting raises and stuff but to me no matter how you look at it theater's not like a huge industry it's hard to get stuff mounted and to make it harder by saying this person can only do this one job which takes place for five minutes yes and runs the whole thing I mean, I come from a kind of a community theater background, and to me, theater is also a community where everybody pitches in and does what they can. I have no problem those people getting paid well, but Jesus, I, I want that person running around and helping change costume, you know, helping, you know, do what's needed to get the show done. Not- yeah, well, actors do it. I mean, an actor will play, you know, four different roles in a show. The first job I ever had in New York, you know, I was I was carrying a spear at the Delacorte in All's Well That Ends Well, and I wore the uniform of one army, and then I ran off stage and changed into the uniform of the other army, and I was, like, fighting myself back, you know. And I mean, actors do that all the time. And I just didn't understand why... Um, you know, somebody who was a particular wing of a particular segment of a particular subset of Yahtzee had two cues in Act 1 and then one cue in Act 2 and the rest of the time you sat around you know, playing cards with somebody who had one cue in Act 2 and, you know, one cue in Act 1 and two cues in Act You know, I mean, I th- I, it just seems to me there has to be some kind of room for a compromise there so that we can all work together because, as you say, it is a community. The important thing and the wonderful thing about theater is that you get to see that and it's all right there in front of you. Everybody working together. I mean, it's like I remember when I, when when pirates first happened, and, and you know, my, I had seen Broadway shows. I'd never been in one. I had no idea what goes on backstage, the complexity of it, and just the sheer number of people whom you never see. You know, and I thought this is like an ocean liner getting ready to leave port. You know, and there's all of the you know you. You don't see half of the people that are responsible for actually getting the ship to move. <laughs> All you get to do is see the actors, and then you know you have an and, and of course the stage manager is the captain. Basically, making sure that we all come back to port safely after two and a half hours, but there's all of these people that you'd never see that I began to you know kind of look at all the wardrobe people and 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 the stagehands and the electricians and you know and and the custodial people in the theater I mean everything it is a completely wonderful group enterprise, and I think. And the producers, uh, to the degree that the producers recognize that they are a part of that group as well, I think it would be easier for everyone to reach compromises about, let's make sure that we all get a fair share of this, because we're all really, everything that we do is essential in this enterprise. You know, it can't, you know, you can't can't just pull out one one little peg uh, and say, oh, it's going to still happen anyway. I mean, I guess you can with actors Mm -hmm. there. That's why we have understudies. Mm -hmm. But... um, it's really important that that we begin to recognize that, and I think it would be good for the economic health of the theater, and I think it would be really good for the spiritual health of the theater, which is a very important aspect of it, too. I agree. Yeah. Well, it's been a fabulous talking with you, Mo. <laughs> uh, there's so much, a world of information that's out there we could probably go on for <laughs> hours if we did, but uh, it was definitely a pleasure to have you here talking for a half hour or so. Remind everybody about your show, Klein Kunst. November 18th through December 30th. At the JCC, the Jewish Community Center, uh, 76th and Amsterdam, I believe, uh, produced by the Volksbühne, the National Yiddish Theater. And um, Do you know where people go to tickets, get tickets? Um, Volksbühne has a website, www. 
F-O-L-K-S-B-I-E-N-E dot org. Uh, you can also get information from the JCC. And um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Do All come. Right. Well, thanks so much. Look forward to it. And have a great day. I enjoyed it. <laughs> you too. On the boards. With our current infatuation with religion and the passions of the clergy, it seems appropriate that the runner stumbles be revived here in New York City. And the Actors Theater Company, otherwise known as TACT, T-A-C-T, is indeed doing that. And we have the actors Cynthia Darlow and Jim Murtaugh here in the studio with us to talk about their production. How you doing? Hi, Michael. Fine, thank you. Fine. Everything's fine. So, for those who aren't familiar with the original production of The Runner Stumbles, uh, tell us a little bit about what the, the show's about. Well, the show is, uh, is, uh, is about a... Um, it opens up with this priest in jail. He's accused of murdering a nun that he had been suspected of having an infatuation with. And um, it opens up, as I said, with him in jail, and it flashes back to when he first met Sister Rita um, at the uh, convent in this out-of-the-way parish in Michigan, and it's based on a true story. Um, and then, I don't want to say any more. It took place in 1911 in Michigan, right. and it was a, a pretty uh, sensational trial, from what we understand, and uh, this, this piece was uh, sort of based on that. That was the, uh, the, in, the inception of the idea, this trial. Yeah, they found her, her bones years later. Four and, and a half years after the murder, her body was discovered, and that's when the trial took place. My mother's 94 and remembers the stories. I remember that, she said. I said huh. Oh, my God. I guess the memory gets better as you get older. <laughs> but it's a fascinating piece, and, and it's about sexual repression and celibacy in the priesthood. And faith and, and loss faith, thereof. Faith and loss thereof, very much so, which many of us go through. Experience. <laughs> it's a very, very relevant play and a very stirring production and, and beautifully performed by everybody in the cast, and I, I sincerely mean that. Yes, we're really proud of it. I think yeah. there's some very good work going on. I think the audiences will be really, really intrigued mm-hmm. by this production. Mm-hmm. The house manager said after the audience leaves, they go to the box office and order seats for their friend for Ooh, future, that's good news. future productions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what roles are you playing in this? I, I, I'm Jim Murtaugh. I'll play the Monsignor, and I'm his superior. And um, I banish him to this out-of-the-way parish uh, because he's not a troublemaker, but he does cause, a, a, say, say, a bit of aggravation to the senior priest, the, the pastors, because he's kind of a gung-ho priest and sort of ahead of the times. And uh, so I think there's some jealousy there. And so uh, the arch- I work for the archbishop, and so we send him off to, uh, to contemplate <laughs> uh, his, his future in the, in the church. So that's, that's my position in the play. And I, Cynthia Darlow, am playing Mrs. Shandig, who is the housekeeper to the priest. And uh, I take care of uh, his household and uh, am very threatened when Sister Rita arrives. The, uh, there are two other nuns at, the, uh, at this particular uh, parish who are down with consumption. So he has to uh, ask for another nun to join this uh, little tiny community. Uh, to help him teach in the school that he founded, that, that Father Rivard, the priest in this story, founded. And I'm his housekeeper. And we won't tell you more because we don't want to spoil the plot. No, no, no. <laughs> housekeeper is very integral to the plot of the, of the play. And Cynthia does a beautiful job of that. Thank you. And um, because the nuns have consumption, he, with the third nun, um, 
he asked to live in the rectory rather than in town because in the, the convent. Town, I mean, in the yeah. in the she and lives in the convent, but he was requesting that she sleep and stay in in the rectory. So then I come and wonder what's going on. <laughs> so, <laughs> she can't uh, rent a room in the town because it's a very rough lumber camp town, and she would not be safe if she were to have to live off the premises of this religious uh, group here. But the last thing the church would want is to have a nun living in the rectory. Yeah, so. so and there the problem begins. Yeah, so that, that, that <laughs> so suspicions are, are, arise when that question is, when that uh, request is brought up. Mark Montgomery plays Father Rivard, um, and it's an extremely demanding role. He's on stage, I would say, almost the entire yeah. two hours. And um, he had just been on Broadway uh, doing uh, Mamma Mia for two years, and he's from Chicago, and he's worked with Steppenwolf for a number of years. So he's done a lot of real heavy stuff a lot these of past heavy two stuff. years. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right, from Mamma Mia. <laughs> That's right. He had his break with Mamma Mia. Now he's got to work his tail off. And do the he, art. Huh? Do the art. And do the art, yes, right. He certainly is. And Ashley West plays Sister Rita and does a marvelous job with that. Now, what has the rehearsal process been like for the two of you with this show? Well, we have mm -hmm. uh, about three and a half weeks rehearsal, and uh, uh, you always want more, but <laughs> that's pretty typical, three or four weeks rehearsal for an off-Broadway show. Mm -hmm. and we were in pretty good shape by the time we had our first we dress were, rehearsal, We were actually. way ready to preview. We really were, yeah. Scott Ellen Evans did a, did a great job directing this play. The staging is magnificent, because it's, it's, a, it's a memory play, and it goes from one stage in life to the next, just fluidly, if there's very little interruption or break. The lighting is wonderful. Um, and we did our rehearsals at our space. Uh, Tech, the Actors' Company Theater, has a uh, their own space on 19th and Broadway where we do stage readings and we have our rehearsals there. But uh, now we're in residence here at the Beckett Theater for our full productions. And last year we did two. We did two. We did uh, The Sea and uh, David Story's Home. Yeah, we actually had Scott Allen Evans on when with with The Sea last uh -huh. year, so uh, our did. listeners could check oh, that. Yeah. It's still up. They can oh, yeah. find that if they're interested. Uh, well, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and those were also very well received. Our company so. is in its, uh, <clears throat> this is our 15th season, which is uh, really Remarkable, something to be able it? to say in Manhattan yeah, to have lasted that long. Yeah, yeah. We have a wonderful, solid subscription base and... Uh, for those of you who don't know our company, it's a well, uh, it's a it's a great value for your entertainment dollar. <laughs> yeah, we have quite a subscription we base do. too. We have about a really four solid subscription people. base. I was in the pizza parlor the other day around the corner. And was, I saw you in the in the, the late Christopher Bean. You were wonderful in that. And I said, Oh my God, they they show up everywhere. Our audience. <laughs> So what what have the two of you been doing in New York recently besides this? Any other shows that? Well, we're very fortunate to uh, be a couple of very busy actors. I just finished doing Old Acquaintance for The Roundabout. Um, and with Harriet Harris. With and, Harriet Harris and, and Margaret Colan and Stephen Bogardas and a wonderful cast. It was a lot of fun. Um, Jimmy is always working, lots of film and TV for him. We, <clears throat> excuse me, we both do voiceovers and audio books. Mm -hmm. uh, Cynthia does all of the... Um, um, the Murder, She Wrote Murder, Mysteries she wrote, for the BBC. Well, the, I'm the she, new Jessica Fletcher. She is, their, <laughs> she is their voice for that, yes. And I've done a lot of television in New York and did the last episode of Criminal Intent back in May. 
How many Law and Orders have you been on? I've been on a number. <laughs> yeah, me too. How many different people on Law? How many different people have the two of you been on Law I've and done Order? Eight for Law and Order. I've been at least nine or ten. Yeah. So Between the two of you have been various. twenty people of New York yeah, on Law and Order. People. Yes. That's what I was, a, was a sleazy photographer in Staten Island. <laughs> I always love it when I'm watching Law and Order. I'm going, wait. That guy was just a bad guy yeah. on the episode I saw last night. Now he's a cop. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness for that show. Yeah, we is. just we love, love it. Love it's Dick so Wolf. well done. And he's, he's done it, wonders for New York City and yes. for New York actors. He's it's just a pleasure to work on the set. Everyone yeah, is, is so it? professional. It's, it's yeah. great. And the series regulars welcome you on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what was each of your favorite Law & Order characters that you were... Um, oh. I, I think the last one I did, it wasn't a huge, one of the bigger ones I've done, but I enjoyed playing this kind of sleazy, gold chain kind of New York kind of guy, you know, and it was chewing gum chewing, <laughs> sleaze ball. I enjoyed that. I think that would probably yeah. be one of the better roles I played. In. My last one was actually one of my favorites as well. I, it was a, a woman uh, dying of cancer whose son was in prison and he for mur- murdering five people. And when he hears I have cancer, he breaks out of prison and is trying to see me, but murders like seven more people along the way. It's a pretty, pretty scary yeah. episode. Jesus. So which which <laughs> of the franchises was that one? That was uh, Criminal Intent. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. That was Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> Mothership, as we call it. Mothership. <laughs> so many of them now. Even yeah, yeah. You would be. lucky to be able to say that. Yeah, right now, special Victims Unit. I'm always saying SUV when I'm on yes, a SUV. SUV. My girlfriend does that, too. I keep going, it's not, a, it's not an SUV. It's not a minivan. <laughs> right, that's right. But uh, they, they've been... They've been good to us. And I did. I did. I did Thirty Rock uh, last year. That was. Oh, I really enjoyed that. It was a very funny role. I um, came on as a, an extra in one of the scenes as an actor, but I was supposed to be playing the boss of the company. And um, Jane Krakowski thinks her job is going to be eliminated. Uh, over here's a conversation that Alec Baldwin is doing, and I'm on the phone next to him. He thinks he's talking to me, and I. She, and she, oh, she mistakes me for the boss of the company anyway, so she has an affair with me. And, they, and, uh, and what's her name, the, the creator of the show? Um, Tina Fey. Tina Fey says, what do you do? He's, not, he's an extra in the sketch. <laughs> <laughs> she says, I don't wear my job. I had a, we slept together last night. He's an extra, for God's sake. <laughs> so I keep coming on to her, and she ignores me. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was a lot of fun. And they were great on the show. And Alec was terrific to work with and a wonderful man so doing a bit of you know you are always working and stuff how consistently and how much are you still have to get out there auditioning all the time you never stop, unfortunately. This is one of the shocks in my career, that it's yeah. still as difficult as it ever was. Yeah. <laughs> you say you're as good as your last job, but even it doesn't matter how good your last job. Yeah. You still come in starting from, from, from scratch, and that's the, 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 the drawback of the business. It's rare that one job will automatically lead to another job. Yeah. They still want you to come in and read their script, read their lines, and... And you're up against 20 people or so. Mm-hmm. How and many auditions a, in a given week will the two of you go on? Oh, well, well, we, we, between theater we, and voiceovers. And yeah, we could, have, you know, we could have six, seven, eight yeah, a week. Easily. Mm-hmm. There aren't as many film and TV auditions. Those are spaced out. But sometimes you can get three or four a week. I mean, oh, yeah. that can happen. Yeah. 
Um, you're always running to something. And you're always preparing for the audition, mm -hmm. and, you know, and then you there's don't. lots of homework. <laughs> lot, there's a lot of homework in audition. You just don't go and do a cold reading. I mean, you really have to prepare these days because yes, the competition indeed. is so intense. The talent to pool get, in this town is staggering. Yeah, you have to give your best shot. And you probably did give your best shot. You did a great, but so did the other guy. You, mm -hmm. you got to... And I, I read for a show I went to see the other day called uh, Gone Baby Gone. I went to see it with my wife, and I said, you know, I'm sure I read for this play, this mm -hmm. movie, and I go, and then my scene that I read came on, I said, oh, my God, I said, Dallas, this is the part that I read for. It was Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> True. True story. So you lose roles for a variety of reasons. You know, Gone Baby Gone, all the critics slammed it because they said that the fact that they cast a star in Morgan Freeman's role gave away the ending. Huh. They said, you know, while Ben Affleck saw a great actor, the public saw a star and said, why is this guy here? And, and I, sure enough, you know, my girlfriend, I'm not going to spoil it for our listeners. No, no. You say, but my girlfriend right away was like, oh, yep, and, and, and said the ending, basically, as soon as she saw Morgan Freeman. Oh, and said, oh she's prescient. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> I didn't either, but, but I, then after she said that, after we saw it, then I saw a bunch of reviews. I saw a lot of reviews. Pointed why out, did they bring uh, him in here? something specific because he doesn't have it's not a huge role right yeah yeah and they were thrilled Take to get off. someone like morgan freeman of course you know and i agree with you know with you know somebody that the public's less familiar with that i mean even That's though right, i even though it didn't right. give it away for me i wasn't surprised there wasn't a shock yeah, in there. Come, yeah, yeah there's got to be more to that role right but you wouldn't have suspected that had it been an unknown that's a good point very good point i know in the ending is a little you're right you know I, I, we <laughs> talked about that afterwards yeah. The important casting, though, to remember, I mean, how much, you know, baggage and familiar actors can bring to a thing and how... Yeah, yeah, yeah but point. it also brought people into the theater. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the main thing. You see the name up there. I mean, Casey yeah. Affleck was not going to, as terrific as he was in the film, is not going to be the draw. Uh, it was Morgan's the big name on the, of the four up there. Right. Amy Ryan, Morgan Freeman, Casey Affleck, and, and um, what's his name? I'm blank. The fourth guy. Um, he was wearing the hairpiece. Uh, I don't oh, uh, yeah. uh, Ed Harris. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Ed Harris, who did hairpiece, which they commented on in, in, in the review. <laughs> but he was also wonderful. But Morgan, I think, was the draw. And whether he was, you know, quite right for that part is another, you know, another story. And he was wonderful in it. But I think you know. Again, for, except for people who are like you know the you know the ten New Yorkers who go see absolutely everything in in New York City. I think one of the, the great things about theater and like your show with the Runner Stumbles is you know they come into the show and they probably have very little baggage attached to the actors or mm -hmm. even if they have seen them in other shows, it isn't the larger than life mm -hmm. persona. I don't think that a lot of the actors give away everything that's going to. Mm -hmm. Happened yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. to yes. them in the show. Yeah, that's that's true. And and they still can get a chance to be surprised a little bit more. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it, in our company, it's it's so wonderful. I always call uh, tact my safe artistic home because you get to do all these plays that are are ordinarily not seen. I mean, one of our uh, mission points is that the plays that we do can't have been produced in the New York area in the last fifteen years. So it's wonderful. They're language-driven and uh, really mm -hmm. good actors, and mm -hmm. we don't depend on names to sell our tickets, so you get to see some really quality work. Mm -hmm. yeah. And certainly and our, our subscription base does have their, I mean, uh, they, they, they do are have fans of the company. Yes. Yeah. Oh, are you in it, Jimmy? Are you in it, Cynthia? Oh, yeah. great. <laughs> oh, you weren't <laughs> in the last one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> very sweet. Yeah. yeah. Like, like most subscribers, I guess, at theater companies, yeah. they have their favorites that they like to see. 
So the runner stumbles is at the Beckett Theater in Theater Row. Theater, yeah. On Theater Row, 42nd Street. We're running to the 24th of November. Um, it's best to go to the website, uh, tactnyc.org, and uh, look at our performance schedule because it is a little crazy. There are some mat- uh, not ma- many matinees. Um, it's just uh, an, an unusual schedule, so it's best to just go to the website and check out the dates of mm-hmm. performance for tickets. And every seat is a great seat. Yeah, some of these newer off-Broadway houses yeah. that have been yeah. built, I think, are yeah. really nice. And it's I, really I, wonderful. I, I, they are we did. Um, Hope they continue to thrive because it's nice to go sit in a comfortable seat. For yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, the seats are spaced far apart and right. comfortable. And There's room for your knees. Yes, the acoustics <laughs> are great. And, uh, Which is a big deal for me. Right. I go to those little yeah. small theaters yeah, and I feel like I'm being yeah. squished into a yeah. can. Even some of the Broadway houses. Oh, I feel like, oh, oh, some oh, of those old Broadway houses. Oh, those seats are tiny. Shoot, they really are. Yeah, you really ruin your back and you'll, you you got to stand up. You're going to get a blood clot if you stay there too long. <laughs> um, but um, what was I going to say? Anything else to say about the play? It's just that it's a wonderful production and I know it hasn't been done in New York in about 30 years. It was yeah. in, um, Broadway 1976, then. I think. 76, yeah. And it was uh, well received at that time. The views were great. So it's really basically like a new play and very relevant to today and to what's going on. My brother was a priest and was uh, married to a, a nun is married to him. <laughs> so he's going to be speaking on Monday. They're going to talk back. So uh, he'll bring his experiences to to uh, to the evening after the show. We have a lot of wonderful talk backs after. Yes, yes, they're uh, always like fascinating. Like one or two a week. And so, uh, How many is just some crazy person in the in the crowd going, Don't go there! No. I've <laughs> 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 never had that happen. <laughs> don't go there, you mean don't go to that place and whatever you know the talk to New York oh, crowd I thought, yeah, right. yeah I know, right, yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly I don't know what my brother's going to talk about it's going to be interesting <laughs> well Cynthia Darlow and Jim Murtaugh uh-huh. thank you so much for coming well, down our it's our pleasure, pleasure. yes thank, thank you. you for having it's us so nice to meet you it is Cabaret Corner being in Times Square in New York can be an incredible thing. You meet some great people. I happened to bump into Shane Shale uh, through a friend, and he was in New York for a week, and he told me about his uh, cabaret in L.A., Upright Cabaret. And I was like, well, can you come in and talk? And it turns out his business partner is also coming into town, and we got them both here, Shane Shale and Chris Isaacson. How are you doing? Very, very well. Thank you. Doing great. Thanks for having us. <laughs> All right. So now you guys are the founders? Yes. Uh yeah. <laughs> we are the founders and producers and hosts and talent scouts. And um, we started the Upright Cabaret out in Los Angeles about two and a half years ago um, when we were starved for Broadway talent, for any kind of outlet where people actually sing live without a recorded track out in Los Angeles. So we. Um, I can understand. I, uh, the last thing I expected to do was a feature on Cabaret in Los Angeles. <laughs> Most people do. <laughs> And most people in L.A. don't even know what cabaret is. They think it's a burlesque. So, or know. a drag show. <laughs> <laughs> so we've done a lot of educating over the years of, um, and building an audience for um, just great talent that comes out, that makes their way out to the West Coast. So, well, now How did you get started with this? Uh, well, Shane and I uh, both you know, had an interest in, 
in talent and wanted to have a space where talent could come and and show their chops. And so uh, we we were at a bar one day and started talking about uh, some of our favorite places like Don't Tell Mamas or Martinis in San Francisco and thought, well, we could have our own place out here. And it, But there was nobody doing that. So um, we started shopping around looking for a place that would ha- host our little show that we wanted to do. And the response was was – not good. Everybody really? <laughs> really in L.A.? <laughs> in L.A. Uh, everybody said that Cabaret was dead and that no one would come to our shows. And the, what, who would come to our shows would be old men uh, and they'd be sitting around a piano listening to Who their, wouldn't spend money. Who wouldn't spend money. <laughs> they, and, uh, you know, it'd be a, like, people had this idea that cabarets were a smoky piano bar with that five people in the audience and old diva singing the songs of Cole Porter. You know, like, uh, that was a stigma that we had and that it didn't make money. So we had to, to go to a lot of different we places. We had to shop our idea around. We finally found um, two guys in West Hollywood that said, we'll give you one night, see what you can do. So we drove out to Venice Beach. Um, on, we found a piano on Craigslist. We drove out to Venice Beach, <laughs> bought a piano from this guy that needed to get, get rid of it because he had to move or something, and he wanted us to move it. And so we bought a piano. We moved it into Mark's restaurant two and a half years ago, and we've basically been sold out ever since. Like we, Opening night was jam-packed. People obviously um, had a desire to see really great talent. People. How did you get the word out even initially? Because um, uh, through circles of friends and internet and um, uh, and going to bars and basically begging people. <laughs> <laughs> but, it was a lot of begging and like just come see my show, just check it out one time um, at first, and then once people saw what we were doing and uh, it's, it's starting to really catch on in Los Angeles. Now, you guys outgrew that spot now and have moved to uh, La Boheme, is that yes. right? Yes. Um, actually, a couple blocks up the street was this restaurant called La Boheme. And um, I was walking down the street after one of our shows, and I s- just looked at this place, and I said, La Boheme, it looks like you stepped onto the set of the Moulin Rouge. It's one of these – it's the most probably the most stunning restaurant I've seen in Los Angeles. And we made, a ca- made it a campaign to get into the restaurant and started just – you know, just going and having meeting after meeting after meeting. And, and asking the manager to come to our show because he – they had never done a promotion there besides opera singers on Saturday night. And they didn't want a promotion in there. They liked being a specialty place where you went for anniversaries and birthdays for dinner. And But the place is screaming to have a show in it. It looks – it's this beautiful backdrop to have – and to put a show in there it just turns everything into something You basically really think that Nicole Kidman is going to descend on a um, <laughs> swing at some point in the evening. It's, it's a really stunning venue. So we got in uh, – it took us about eight or nine months to convince them. And once we did convince them, um, we opened there, I guess, last May. Yeah. And it's been, it's been, uh, it, it's been a, a challenge because it was a bigger house, and also they wanted to put uh, restrictions on how much you know people had to meet a certain minimum at tables and things like that. And at first, it took it was hard for us to adjust to that because at Marks it was just like order whatever you want as long as you're drinking or having it's fun. It's definitely a different market in cabaret between like the don't tell mamas the yeah. you know where it's just pop in and pop out and like right. here in New York you got the Algonquin for instance. Exactly. <laughs> and this is kind of the perfect blend of of Don't Tell Mamas and Joe's Pub and uh, yeah, it, yeah. And, and, and a more upscale environment too like the Algonquin you know it's, it's very 
but it has its very West Coast feel, which is you know something that we've kind of like tried to brand as a West Coast idea. You know, that's why it's upright and L.A. cabaret because it's, it's our idea of what L.A. cabaret would be. Well, we're going to get into talking this a little bit more after we play a song. But one of the things that uh, really excites me too is that you guys um, have some like original songs too. That it's not just a cabaret of dead music, great music, but you know. There are plenty of great new composers out there. And uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this first song that we're going to play? The, the first one I think we're going to play is um, Tracy Toms is, um, has come to the show a couple times now and has brought an original song by uh, one of her friends. She has a lot of very talented friends back here in New York, and she's taken these songs and have kind of um, given her stamp of um, what Tracy does and she steps on that stage every time and just delivers a great performance as an actress as well as this girl has such a fantastic voice and I'm such a huge fan of hers um, that um, so take a listen to Tracy's song from um, the show this one's falling apart and it's a Jeremy Schoenfeld piece alright let's take a listen so this is it this is the end I suppose we were barely getting started once again, who knows, we might have had a shot. A lot of lovers had it worse. We made a start. But now we're falling apart. So many words, so much to say.
All right, so now tell us a little bit more about kind of the music and the performers and everybody that shows up here. It's, it seems uh, like quite a array. Well, it's an eclectic <laughs> mix of people. Um, for like, I've always prided in saying that we're <clears throat> excuse me that we're Broadway with a twist of pop and R and B. Like you never know what you're going to see. And um, Shane likes to say that if you don't like this, if you don't like what you're hearing now, wait five minutes and it's going to be something new and original. Um, <clears throat> who you're going to see at the show? The show has become very much. Um, a, a forum for TV stars and Broadway stars and also incredibly talented up-and-coming local talent that you don't even know about but can sing their face off to come and really showcase what they can do in front of an audience that, that are, we've now conditioned our audience to be... Um, Conditioned. It sounds like you get electrodes. I think that we've opened a lot of people up to exploring all sorts of different things. And um, the best part about our show is that you look in the audience and you see the table that's spending dropping five hundred dollars on dinner, and then you see the the girl that just bought a five dollar beer in the bar. So there's the twenty somethings, the fifty somethings, the black, the white, the young, the old, the straight, the gay. It's just a very interesting mix of people and um, something that, you know, in L.A. you don't necessarily um, get that mix all the time and especially to come here, you know, cabaret. So <laughs> Now, kind of how many people are performing on a given night? Fifteen. We try to keep it around fifteen. Sometimes the shows get a little long because I'm just a girl who can't say no. <laughs> um, and you have people like Shoshana Bean calling and saying, I, I can perform tonight and you're not going to, you know. I, I, she's She's on the West Coast now, everyone, and we, we love that she's now a, a regular of our show. <laughs> um. <laughs> and uh, you, I understand you had somebody from uh, Rupert Holmes from Curtain stop by. and Yeah. Um, last July, they were out in L.A. doing the, um, the premiere of Curtains out there, the out-of-town tryout, I suppose, um, but at the, out at the Amundsen. And Rupert um, was very gracious enough to... Accept our invitation. Accept our invitation. And um, come to the show. And we actually did a whole night of his songs where we had the, all the performers, the upright performers, learn his songs from the 70s and 80s. And um, then we put them on the stage and, and, you know, did a whole night of Rupert Holmes, a tribute to Rupert Holmes. And then he came down after the show and played the Pina Colada song and listened to everybody perform. It was pretty amazing, actually. It was a very fun night and a great opportunity for a lot of people that um, – to, to, you know, to basically perform the songs of a, a legend. <laughs> Let's take a listen to one more song from a performer. Um, you want to set the this next one performer? Up? Uh, this girl, uh, she was, she kind of just dropped into our life about four or five months ago. She, uh, one of our fans that comes to the show regularly calls and says, "Hey, you should hear this girl's MySpace page." So we go to the MySpace page, listen to her, and I was like, "Who is this?" Um, I emailed her via MySpace, said, come, why don't you come over and sing? And she brought a song called The Moon. And it, it, it completely blew us away. And our opening night audience, she, before she finished her first song, the first time she performed on the stage, she had a standing ovation in the audience. It's, her name is Audra May. She, I call her the future in the hope of music. <laughs> um, she really is one of the most diverse artists I've heard, and um, she writes all this brilliant um, original stuff. And we're actually, we have, Tracy's actually going to come and sing a song on the 25th of hers. Um, 
But Audrey happens to be the great niece of Judy Garland. We didn't know that when we went to her MySpace page. And she was living a very different life in Hollywood than Judy Garland. At that point, <laughs> she was living out of the back of her car. But um, <laughs> she has that true Hollywood story. She has a, um, a development deal with a record, comp- uh, a record publisher right now, a music publisher. And things are just happening, and I'm really excited about her. This last week, we um, debuted her at the Hotel Cafe, which is one of the best music venues in Los Angeles. Um, and Because one of the opportunities that we're starting to get as, as a popular cabaret is now we're starting to go into uh, producing young artists and presenting them in, in, in a solo shows. And so our very first artist that we did that with was Audra May last week. And it was uh, brilliant and a wonderful show and uh, rece- uh, received very, very well. The song is called Fool's Gold. My mama didn't raise no captain, no phoenix ever laid no fool. This high above the old world's ashes, I'm on fire and I'm burning for truth. My daddy rides a fat boy Harley with silver painted in the chrome. It's heaven when he leads into the curves. You gotta feel it if you fight it. May the good Lord guide you home.
So now, since it is a, obviously, you know, the the bigger names can give you a buzz, but you mentioned that it is some up and comers too. How do the how do the newer performers that are talented get your attention or get into the show? Uh, the same way everybody does, really. I mean, people just come to us if they if they they want to sing and they love to sing. They just you know come to us and speak to us. And we ask typically if they can do come we, an audition and yeah, we have an audition process where we people refer people to us. Um, we had yeah, we had a kid out from Carnegie Mellon this year. Um, he was just came out to L.A. for the summer to check out L.A. to see if that's a place that he wanted to move someday. And after one of the shows, he came. I'd really, really love to perform on the show. And so he just comes up to me, gives me his number, and the next thing you know, he's um, singing on the show because you know, he's a Carnegie Mellon kid, and we love those kids. <laughs> um, he's very talented, very talented. So and you go, you can go to the MySpace page right now, and you can hear his performance right up next to Shoshana's and Tracy's and Andre's and it's that's how we just kind of integrate people into the show um, and over yeah. the years we've had I, I think our roster of like 300 performers have been have made it to the show 75 Broadway musicals have been represented and then TV shows like Grey's Anatomy Ugly Betty How um, I Met Your Mother Cold Case NYPD Blue like all the all these television people have made it to the stage too because a lot of people don't realize that some of these television people even sing like the Becky Newtons of Ugly Betty and Michael Urie and um, they're very talented they're very talented so so now this goes on once a week yeah well right now we are on tour um, <laughs> which is a very strange thing actually Lava Wham is remodeling the interior and they're remodeling it around our show so for two months now uh, for a month now they've been uh, down or closed while they're remodeling the interior and they'll, they'll open again in October so right now we're, we're going to be airing this actually in October we're taping it a bit in advance so oh <laughs> so perfect roll that back <laughs> <laughs> great so when you're listening to this <laughs> we are going to be at Lava Wham and we're going to be going to a weekly show um, starting in October for the grand opening so check you know check our MySpace page because we'll definitely have um, all the opening yeah you can find out everything you want about Upright Cabaret if you go to www.uprightcabaret.com or if you'd like to see photos and live songs from the most current show uh, go to myspace.com slash Upright Cabaret all right. Well, um, Shane Shale, right? Correct. Because it's, it's spelled Shield, so I get yeah, I'm I'm confused. <laughs> Chris Isaacson, I thank you so much for stopping by and chatting. It sounds like a lot of fun. It's nice to see you know some new, younger, fresh faces out there. You know, you know, championing cabaret. We love it, and we just we hope to keep doing this until we're really old. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank, thank you. Curtain call. Well, that wraps up all of Volume 135, all two episodes of it. Thanks to all of our guests for showing up. And I'd like to remind everybody again, like the announcement of the thing, please check out our brand new web player, BroadwayBullet.com. If you've got a MySpace or Facebook page or blog, uh, take please embed it in your, in your site. It'll be a big help, and we're going to start adding a lot of content. And let me know at info at BroadwayBullet.com if there's something you think should be in there. We're not going to close it just to our show. We're going to try to make it a whole theater network, so to speak. Well, I am your host, Michael Gilbo, and 
until November 22nd. That will be volume 136. Yes, I know it's Thanksgiving, but I actually put it together the day before. Don't worry, I'm going to have my turkey. But that's when the next episode will be up with lots of great stuff. Sign up for our mailing list. Get that free digital CD of all the best performances of Broadway Bullet 2007. And that way you'll be in line for some great, great, great contests we're going to be announcing next week and giveaways. So, um... Thanks for hopping aboard the Broadway Bullet, and I will see you in two weeks. All aboard! Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. It is live. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.